You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 15, let's read together verses 18 through the end of the chapter. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are thankful again for your word, and it is always with joy and delight that we arrive here each week to hear in your word what you have to teach us. We are so thankful for the revelation of Scripture and that you have preserved it for us, and we now come and gladly bow the knee before it and ask that you would work in us, not only understanding, but also obedience to your word. Help us to think rightly about our world and the things that are in it and about our role in this world. Help us to be encouraged today, we pray, that your spirit would edify and equip us through your truth, that you would be glorified here in our time and our study together. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Well, nobody likes to be hated. At least normal people don't like to be hated. I guess there are weird people who somehow delight in the opposition that they get or persecution that they receive, but most normal people do not like to be hated. And I would say that that is probably especially true for Christians because as Christians, we understand the real nature of what hatred is. Um, We understand that hatred is a violation of the Sixth Commandment, that our hatred for someone is, in essence, a hatred for the image of God in that person. And we understand that hatred is the seed of the sin of murder, And that for us to hate somebody in our hearts is to murder them in our hearts. It is a violation of God's law. So we understand that that, that murder or hatred is truly a wicked evil. It is a wicked sin. And we have been delivered out of that. As Christians, we were once foolish and disobedient, serving various lusts and pleasures, as Paul says to Titus in Titus 3, verse 3, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So hatred used to mark our life, it used to mark our attitude, our demeanor, uh, what was in our hearts and the way that we approached uh, everybody and everything. We, we were filled with hate. We were hate mongers. And we've been delivered out of that as Christians. And so now, having been delivered out of that and been regenerated, now we have hearts that are really tuned to love. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we understand what love is and we desire to love. And because of the radical regenerative nature of salvation that we have been given a a new heart with new desires and new affections, now we have hearts that are capable of loving. And so we, as those who once were filled with hatred and hating one another, 
Now we have been turned from haters of God into lovers of God. Haters of Christ into lovers of Christ. Haters of truth into lovers of truth. Haters of light into lovers of light. And now we have been commanded to love each other, to love one another, to love the gospel, to love the truth, to love God, to love His Word. We have been commanded to love even our enemies. And so as Christians, when we see hatred in one another or in our own hearts, we want to mortify that sin because we realize how wicked it is and how horrible it is. And so we we attack it. We want to mortify it. We want to kill it. And we see it for what it is, a despicable sin and a despicable evil. And, And we want instead to be filled with the opposite of that, which is love. And so no one likes to be hated, and, and most of all Christians, we because we see the, the true nature of hatred, we really desire to be the opposite of that, loving. And because we have been saved and regenerated, uh, we want to love one another, and we want to love our enemies, we want to love people more. But we live in a world that is filled with haters and hateful people, and the world hates us. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The only ones who can truly love are Christians. They're the only ones who can truly love. Because, and I'm defining love not in having an affection for something, but in love in the terms that God defines love and describes love. That is a selfless, sacrificial, humble, gracious, seeking of the good and the best for somebody else to the glory of God, a love that is grounded and rooted in the truth. Only a Christian can do that. Only a Christian can love somebody as Christ has loved them. Unbelievers can't do that because love is a fruit of the Spirit, and unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit. Further, unbelievers don't have the truth. They don't know the truth. They don't respond to the truth. They don't understand the truth. They can't understand spiritual things. They have not embraced or come to a love of the knowledge of the truth and a love for the truth. And because they don't have the truth and they don't have the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of truth, unbelievers cannot love in the way that the Bible describes love. Only Christians can do that. And yet, ironically, unbelievers call Christians haters because we do not embrace and love their sin and their rebellion. And whenever an unbeliever lectures me on what love is or what loving somebody should look like or what that's about, I kind of view it like a blind man describing to me colors. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what in the world do you know about the true nature of love? Do unbelievers have affection for things and for people and for for darkness? Yes, they do. They have a love for the darkness, but a love for the truth and a love for other people in its purest and highest sense is something that is only capable from the heart of a believer. Our hearts have to be regenerated before they have the capacity to love the way that God demands that we love and commands us to love. Now, to the world, when the world looks at Christians, they see our hatred for their behavior and our hatred for their conduct, our hatred for what they believe and what they stand for and how they live. We ought to have a right and pure hatred of those things which dishonor God and destroy the image of God in people. We ought to hate those things. But the unbeliever looks at our hatred of those things, and they see that as hatred of them. Because unbelievers are unable and unwilling to distinguish between hating what somebody does and hating someone. They are unable and unwilling to distinguish between those two things. So your refusal to affirm their rebellion and to champion their their hatred for God and their hostility to the truth and their lifestyle, whatever they may choose it to be, your unwillingness to champion that and affirm it is seen to them as hatred. When in fact it is not hatred, it is actually love. Because if we sought the highest and best for somebody else, that is what love is, then we would never champion the very thing that will destroy them or lead to their eternal ruin. 
In fact, we would seek to turn them from that, to stand against that, and to warn them of the consequences of that. But since the world is unable to distinguish between hating what somebody believes and hating someone, the one who believes that, since they're unwilling to distinguish that, when, when we make that distinction, they can't understand that. So since you're not willing to affirm their rebellion, they see that as hatred, when in fact it is, it is very loving to not affirm them in their rebellion. So if you want to, as a Christian, be loved by the world, then you're going to have to become like the world. You're going to have to hate the truth and respond to the truth as an unbeliever would and refuse to shine the light and refuse to stand for the truth and love darkness, live in darkness, promote the darkness, affirm the darkness, call their darkness light so that they feel okay with it. And if you're willing to do that, then you will have the affirmation and the approval and the applause and the love of the world. But as Christians, as long as we stand in the truth and shine the light and we're willing to be light in the midst of darkness, the world will hate us Not because they hate us, but because they actually hate the one that we represent. So we've been looking in John 15 about the reasons that the world hates us. And we covered two of them. In verse 18 and verse 19 of chapter 15, we saw the two first two reasons that the world hates us. The world hates us because we are not of it. If we were of the world, the world would love us. Why? Because of this general principle that the world loves its own. There are there are internal squabbles within the realms of darkness once in a while, but there is nothing like the presence of light to unite all the forces of darkness against the light. Now, if the light is removed, then the forces of darkness, of course, will bicker and fight with each other. But as long as the light is there, the forces of darkness are united in their opposition against the light because we are not of the world. The world does not love us. If you did business like the world and raised your kids like the world and affirmed the things that the world affirms and hated the things that the world hates, and if you loved the things that the world loves and and, and you did all, lived your entire life as if it is in darkness and affirmed the darkness and approved the darkness, then the world will love you because there's no difference between you and the world. But as long as you love the truth and stand for the truth, the world's going to hate you because the world loves its own and you are not of it. Second reason that the world hates us is because we have been chosen, elect, out of the world. The world hates the elect. Jesus said in verse 19, because of this, because he chose us out of the world for this reason, the world hates us. The world looks at Christians. We are those who have been chosen, elect, selected by God out of the mass of humanity and been given a very high calling, a high station in life. We have been chosen to be given the kingdom. And the world looks at us and they see that we are do not belong to them. Instead, we belong to Christ. And we've been chosen out of the world and we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And because of the high calling which we have and the high station which we have been given, as sons of God, as sheep that belong to the Good Shepherd, for that reason, the world hates us. The world always hates those who are favored by heaven. Those who are favored by heaven are always hated by the world. It has always been the case. It will always be the case. Those who have the favor of heaven will find that they also have the hatred of the world. So not only have we been not of the world, but we have been chosen or selected out of the world. Brethren, do you understand that the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to you? Do you understand that? The eternal kingdom, the eternal, glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to the believer. It is ours in full. I don't get one billionth of it. I get the entire kingdom. I get the entire kingdom and I get the king. And for that reason, because we have been given that, the world hates us. It resents us. So now we're looking at the next two reasons that the world hates us. Not only because we are not of the world and we have been chosen out of the world. Third, because we bear the name of Christ. That's in verses 20 and part of 21. And third, because the world does not know God. So we're looking at those next two reasons the world hates us. Because we bear the name of Christ and because the world does not know God. Look again at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Let's begin at the beginning of verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. This is not something that Jesus had said on a previous occasion, at least not in these words, but it is something that Jesus said this very night that he was gathered together with his disciples. And I want to show you the context in which he said it and how he used that that phrase, that proverb, turn back to chapter 13. So this happened on the night, the same night, just earlier the same evening. I know it's been like eight months since we were in chapter 13, and it feels like forever, and it was two whole chapters ago. But keep in mind that chapter 13 was just a couple of hours in the disciples' time. Chapter 13, beginning at verse 12, this is after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet and humbled himself to serve them. So verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments... And reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent him greater than the one who, one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So that is the that is the occasion in which Jesus gave that proverb. Now in chapter 13, of course, this happens at the the washing of the disciples' feet, and he is the general truism is this: If I, as your master, have done this to you, how much more obligated are you, as the servant, to wash one another's feet? If I have humbled myself to wash yours, you also can humble yourself to wash one another. And the general principle is that a slave ought not to expect a better condition in life than his master. So in chapter 13, that that proverb, that truism, a slave is not greater than his master, is used to teach the disciples how they ought to treat one another. In chapter 15, now back to chapter 15, verse 20, in chapter 15, that truism is used to teach the disciples how they ought to expect to be treated by the world. So it is the same principle that a master is greater than his slave. A slave is not greater than his master. It is the same principle used to teach two different truths. In other words, Jesus, that one truism he is applying in two different ways. In chapter 13, to encourage them to show their love for one another through sacrificial service just as he has done. In chapter 15, to show that they ought not to expect that same love and service from the world. So that it's kind of an opposite lesson in, in that sense that in chapter 15 now he's taking the same statement and saying, look, if the king is rejected and hated and persecuted, what ought you to expect that his low-level servants will be treated as. We understand that principle, don't we? If they reject the ambassador, if they reject the king, then how ought you to expect them to receive his low-level servants? They won't. That's the general principle. Now, on previous occasions, Jesus had said similar things to this, but not with the exact words. Here in chapter 15, he is actually quoting what he said earlier that evening in chapter 13. But on previous occasions, he used sort of similar Similar phrases to sort of teach the same truth. And I'll give you an example of it. In John chapter, sorry, Matthew chapter 10, um, Jesus was sending out his disciples to preach and teach in the surrounding villages. And when he did, he prepared them uh, before he sent them out. And he told them what response they ought to expect when they went out into the villages and the cities and preached the truth. So he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? It's the same principle. If they have slandered the king, what do you think they're going to say of the servants? 
If they persecuted the king, what are they going to do to the servants? If they hated the king, what do you think they're going to do to you? And you understand that the outworking of this in our day, this is the, this is the thing that we are so tempted to forget. In evangelicalism today, maybe it's because we've had it soft for a couple of hundred years in our own country, evangelicalism today seems intent on thinking that the response of the world to us should be this warm, loving embrace. And much of what evangelical leaders and churches seek to do is to get the world to like us. We actually have the, the opposite view than Jesus. We ha- have in the church the opposite view of what Jesus has in this text. We think that though they hated the Master, they ought to love us. And though they rejected the Master, they ought to welcome us. And that we ought to be treated actually better than the Master was treated. That though the world hated Him, it should love us and, and welcome us with open arms. You know how much church ministry is geared to that very way of thinking? The entire seeker-centered, seeker-friendly church movement, the church growth movement of our day, is that philosophy worked out. It is implemented. And we are told, and I've sat in the seminars and the workshops and heard them say this, if the world is not flooding into your church, you're doing something wrong. That is the mentality of most of evangelicalism. According to this text, it is the polar opposite. If the world is flooding into your church, you are doing everything wrong. The world should hate the slave as much as the world hates the master. That's the principle. The world should hate the slave as much as it hates the master. And so Jesus goes on in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, did they persecute him? Yeah, they did. So he's just working out the principle at the beginning of the verse. Did they persecute him? They did. So what should you expect? You should expect persecution. Now listen, if you're not persecuted, if you, if you wake up tomorrow morning and you have your breakfast and you leave and you go to work and you work all day long and you come home from work and you relax, you sit down, you watch some television with your spouse and you go to bed tomorrow night and nobody stones you and leaves you for dead or beats you with a whip or flogs you or whatever, calls you a name, don't think for a second, okay, I must be doing something wrong, I must be just like the world. If we are not persecuted, it doesn't necessarily mean we are compromising, but it might mean that we're compromising because if we're living godly in Christ Jesus, we ought to expect this. We certainly should never expect the world to love us or applaud us or approve of us. When Fox News and and Christianity Today and CNN applauds somebody and says praising things about them publicly, a Christian, I always scratch my head and say, what is going on? What is wrong with this? Why is the world approving of this man? It can only be because in some way he is not shining the light of truth into their darkness. That can be the only explanation. But listen, if you wake up tomorrow and you go through your day and you're not persecuted, you have to get to the end of it, and be delightfully surprised and thank God that you escaped persecution that day. Now, if this goes on for six to eight months and you never receive any resistance or, or pushback from the world because you are a Christian, then you ought to start to question to whom you belong. Right? In, in our day, we have become used to having it easy. But we ought to be delightfully surprised if, in fact, we are not persecuted for our faith. If they persecuted him, then they will also persecute us. And there's an opposite Working out of that principle, look at verse 20. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. Did they keep his word? Did the world keep the word of Christ? No, some students and expositors and commentaries say, well, there were some who kept his word, right? 120, by the time he left, by after the resurrection, there were at least uh, over 100 believers. But that's not describing, this is not describing believers who are called out of the world. Does, Does the world obey the message of the gospel and the message of Christ? They do not. Now listen, when the church stands outside of the world and says to the world, repent 
and come out of them and touch not the unclean thing. When that is the clarion call of the church and unbelievers come out of that darkness into light, it is not the world system or unbelievers or God-haters that is responding to that call. It is those whom the Father gave to the Son who are responding to that call. It is the sheep who belong to the shepherd who hear His voice in the proclamation of the gospel and come out of darkness and are transferred out of darkness into light. But it's not the world that embraces the message of Christ. It's individual believers who are living in the world who hear the voice of the shepherd and come out of it. Just like you, if you are a believer, did yourself. You heard the shepherd calling. And you came out of darkness by His grace, by His doing, by His wooing, all by all by Him. You came out of darkness into light. He transferred you out of darkness into the kingdom of light. But the world, unbelievers, those who hate God, are they going to respond positively to His word? Now they didn't keep His word when He proclaimed it here. They were not going to keep it now. They're not going to respond positively now. In the book of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel was called to be a prophet, God warned him in chapter 3 saying this, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or of difficult language, but to the house of Israel. I'll stop there for just a second. When, when God called Ezekiel to be a prophet to the nation of Israel, did you notice what God said to him? Go and speak my word to them. Not your own clever imaginations, not your own quirky, culturally relevant messages, but my word. Ezekiel is to be a prophet to speak the word of God to the people. And he says, I'm not, you're not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Now listen, yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Why would the house of Israel reject Ezekiel's words? Because they rejected God's words. Because they rejected God's words. And it is not the job of the Christian, of you, or of the preacher, or of the church leader, to find some way to take the message and make it culturally relevant or acceptable to the world. That is not our job. Our job is to proclaim the message to the world. A lot of church leaders think that their job is to take what God has said and find some way of marketing it or make it palatable so that the world will embrace it. And then they find that this message that they have repackaged, the world does indeed love. And listen, if the world loves the message that you preach, then be assured at some point in that transition, you have exchanged God's message for your message. Because they will not embrace or love the word of Christ. If the world persecuted him, it will persecute us. If it embraced his word, which it did not, then it will embrace ours as well. And it won't. The world will not embrace the word of the true Christian. And notice then in verse 21 that Jesus says we are persecuted for his word. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. For my name's sake. All these things. What's the all these things refer to? He uses that phrase again down in chapter 16, verse 3. Look, look down a couple of verses. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Now, that's almost a direct statement of verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. So that all these things seems to be a reference to uh, a lot of various means of persecution or rejecting the truth. In other words, they will hate you, they will slander you, they will gossip about you, they will reject you, they will deny you, they will disdain you, they will persecute you, they will try and kill you, they will try and stone you. They will do all of these things, all of these various means of resisting and rejecting the truth they will do. In, in our own nation, we have been exposed mostly to what we might call soft persecution. Well, that soft persecution is starting to stiffen up a little bit as now we are seeing Christians being put out of business and fined out of business and dragged before human rights councils. And, and disparaged in the press 
And it's not going to get any easier, barring a move of God. It's only going to get worse. The soft persecution where the world just rejects us and hates us and talks about us behind our back, it is going to get stiffer, and we ought to expect it, and we ought not to be surprised by it as though some weird thing were happening to us. The soft persecution is going to get harder in our nation, and we need to be prepared for it. I think these are timely words because it's turning toward darkness, and the more that we stand for the truth, the more difficult it is going to be for Christians and the more we are going to be hated by the world. And we ought to expect this. And we ought not to be surprised by it. We ought to expect it. And in one sense, I think we ought to embrace it. Embrace it in the sense that we are understanding we have been appointed to this. We are to submit to this. God is sovereign in this. It's not happening outside of His purview. It's not like God doesn't understand what is going on. He understands what's going on. And we ought to embrace it in the sense that we understand this is our calling. And if we are called to suffer for the faith and for the name of Christ in our own nation, we can have the assurance that Paul gave to the Philippians that to you it has been granted not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His namesake. These things are gifts from God. Not only the belief to believe, but to suffer for His namesake. It is a gift. So if that is what God should call us to do, then we will stand for the truth and we will embrace that affliction and we will embrace that suffering. We will wrap our arms around it as a good gift which God has given to His people in this nation. And the light will be brighter as the darkness grows darker and the darkness is growing darker and the true light will shine. The true light will shine. We will suffer for His namesake. Um, Let me give you an example of, of compromise because you see it in the headlines. I can give you hundreds of examples, obviously. We have a, a whole subculture in the professing Christian church that seems to be wanting to compromise to avoid the rejection of the world. Well, just recently, uh, Rob Ding Dong Bell, I call him Ding Dong Bell because that's my affectionate name for him, Rob Ding Dong Bell, who was a pastor of Mars Hill Church over east in Minneapolis or whatever, uh, any, any Christian who was paying attention 10 years ago would have known that Rob Bell was a heretic, would have known that because he was a heretic and, and most people could see that. But he kind of flew under the radar, and it's been a while that he's been wearing the sheep's clothing. Within the last few months, he's taken off the sheep's clothing entirely. Now you can see that he is a wolf. He always has been a wolf. He hasn't changed into a wolf. He's always been a wolf. But recently, Rob Bell, who was a pastor of a church in, in uh, back east, Minneapolis, Minnesota, somewhere in there, he uh, joined forces with Oprah Winfrey because nothing says Christianity like the New Age, Islamic, Buddhist, um, made-up, man-made spirituality of Oprah Winfrey and her Oprah-anity. So he has joined forces with her, and now he has a television program on her network, and he came out, this is within the last few months, and said, the church is going to be irrelevant in our nation unless it changes its stance on the homosexual issue, on our homosexual issue. The church is going to become irrelevant in our nation unless the church changes its stance on this. In other words, unless we go and become just like the world, and compromise in this area, the church is going to become irrelevant. What is the assumption behind Rob Bell's statement? That in order for the church to be relevant, it has to be loved by the world. That's his real fear. The church is no longer going to be loved by the world unless the church changes on this issue. So, are you prepared to become irrelevant? Do you know how much I care about being relevant in the terms that Rob Bell mentions relevance? Do you know how much I care? I mean, on the scale between this being a lot and this being a little, it's it's negative integers. That's how much I care. As long as the church stands outside of the world and says, repent and believe the gospel for judgment is coming. 
And there is a day appointed in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, as long as the world calls that and makes that the message, sorry, as long as the church makes that the message to the world, the church will always be relevant. Because that's the truth. And the truth is always relevant. You know who becomes irrelevant? Those who compromise the truth. His path to relevancy is a path into oblivion and irrelevancy. Because the truth is always relevant. All right, so if they persecuted him, they will persecute us. And one thing that you and I need to understand is that this is for his name. He says, these things they will do to us for his name's sake. Verse 21, these things they will do to you for my name's sake. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for the affliction that they were to receive, he warned them in Matthew chapter 10, you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Matthew 10:22, you will be hated by all because of my name. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Matthew 10:39, he who has found life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. And when Paul the apostle was called by Christ, Christ said to him, or of him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Listen, as a Christian, we suffer for his name, not for what we do, but for his name. And if you want sort of an interesting study, read through the book of Acts and just chart or notice all of the times that Christians were persecuted in the book of Acts. And it would be it would serve you well to slow down in chapters 3 and 4 and count all the references to the name of Christ in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Acts. And here's what you'll find. In chapter 3, Peter and John were going into the temple and they saw a man who was lame there by the temple gate. And they healed him in the name of Christ. And he got up, began to dance around and leap for joy and praise God. And people gathered around and Peter and John took that opportunity to preach the gospel to those who were there. So they began to preach the name of Christ. Well, the religious leaders of the nation, since they had crucified this man by this name only a few weeks earlier, decided to haul Peter and John in and and to query them. And so they brought arrested Peter and John, brought them in. They said to them, by what power... Or in whose name did you do this? And Peter said, It is because of the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised again, because of his name this man stands before you in good health. And then Peter went on to say, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's Acts 4, verse 12. And then after the religious leaders consulted together, they brought Peter and John in back and said this was their punishment. They declared to them, You are permitted no longer to speak or to teach in this name. Now listen, Peter and John could have preached a hundred different messages and the religious leaders wouldn't have cared. Could have preached a hundred different messages and they wouldn't have cared at all. But the name of Christ, that was the cause of their suffering. In Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, that is the beginning of Christian persecution. And what was the issue? That Peter and John weren't loving? No, they'd healed a man. They'd healed a man. A man who'd never walked. Is it because Peter and John didn't do good for their community? They healed a man. What was the issue? Why were they persecuted? Because they sounded intolerant? Because of the name of Christ. There is no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. This Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised up, God has appointed to him made him both Lord and Christ. So repent and believe the gospel. That was their message. Because of the name of Christ, Peter and John were persecuted. You and I have to understand something. When we suffer for the name of Christ, it's not personal. It's not personal. We, we do an affront, a disservice to the truth. When we take something that comes at us as if it is as against us, when it's actually against the Lord Jesus Christ, and we make it personal. And we say, I can't believe that they're hating on me like this. Start to whine and get upset and lose sleep. What are you, insane? That's not, 
It's not you they hate. It's not personal. You know what they hate? They hate the one whom you serve. That's the one they hate. Listen, if you abandon the light and embrace darkness, do you think they'll still hate you? No, they love you. They love you. The world loves its own. It's not personal. When the world hates you or attacks you or you suffer for righteousness sake, it's not because you're you. It's because you belong to the Lord of creation, the Lord of life and light. It's Christ they hate. It's not, it's not a personal hatred, so don't take it personally. And I think we actually do a disservice for the truth, to the truth, when we do that. When we take something that is actually meant for the Lord Jesus Christ and make it our own. As if it's us that they hate. And it's not. It's Him that they hate. And because they hate Him, they hate His name, they hate those who bear His name. This name that has saved us, this name into which we are baptized, this name that has brought us salvation and purchased our redemption, this name that sanctifies us and secures us, the name in which we ask in prayer, this one, that name is the one that they hate. And because we are identified with Him, and we are baptized in Him, and we are identified in Him, because of that name and our identification with Him, that's why they hate us. You want to be loved? Embrace the world. The world will love you. They will applaud you. Tell them that their darkness is light, and they will love you. But as long as you stand for the truth, they won't. That means that it is not you that they hate. Well, I mean, they do hate you. But listen, it's not because you're you. It's because you represent the God of truth. It is not because Christians are not loving that the world hates us. It's not because Christians don't do good to the world that they hate us. It is not because Christians sound intolerant that they hate us. All those are excuses. All of those are just reasons. All of those are nothing but a cover for the hatred that they have for the one true God who is incarnate in Jesus Christ. And because they hate Him, and we are identified with Him, therefore they hate us. And there is a blessing for those who are persecuted for this name. I just want to remind you of the blessing. The blessing is given to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, when Peter says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. In Romans chapter 8, Paul promises us this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. So there's the blessing. There's the promise of blessing for those who suffer in the name of Christ. Why does the world hate us? They hate us because we don't belong to it. They hate us because we're chosen out of it and been given the highest station possible, sons of God. They hate us because we bear the name of Christ. And the fourth reason that they hate us at the end of verse 21 is because it does not know God. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know the one who sent me. Who is the one who sent him? It's the Father. Because they do not know the Father, therefore they hate you. They will do these things to you because they do not know God. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that they're ignorant of who God is. He's, he is, in some cases, speaking of the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament and memorized entire books of the Old Testament. Is he saying that some men do not know that God exists? No, all men know that God exists, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what does he mean when he says they do this because they do not know the one who sent me? He is saying that salvifically they do not know God. They do not want know the one true God. And to know Him is eternal life. And they do not know Him savingly in that sense. And because they are not saved, they have not been enlightened, their eyes have not been opened, they don't know the truth, they don't know salvation, they don't know repentance, they don't know grace, they don't know compassion, they don't know mercy. These poor people, they do not even know the condition in which they are. They do not even see their eternal destiny. They do not see the eternal consequences of what they are doing. They are truly, in every sense of the word, completely ignorant because they do not know the Father. And because they do not know the Father, they hate the Son. And because they hate the Son, They hate those who bear the name of the Son. So what is the world's 
What is the world's vantage point or perspective of you? They hate you. Why? Because you're you? No. No, they hate you because you don't belong to it. They hate you because you've been chosen out of it. They hate you because you bear the name of Christ. And they hate you ultimately because they do not know the Father. It's almost as if the, the further we dive down into this passage, the closer we get to the core of the issue. This is the core of the issue. The rest of these are kind of like layers on an onion. Now we're getting down to the real issue. What is the real issue? They do not know the Father. Because they do not know the Father, they hate the Son as well. Hate to spoil the ending for you, but look down at verse 23, which we'll get to next week. He who hates me hates my Father also. To hate the Son is to hate the Father. To hate the Father is to hate the Son. Listen, to hate the Father and the Son is to hate those who belong to the Father and the Son. The world does not distinguish between that. And when Paul says in Colossians, I think it's chapter 1, verse 24, where he says he is filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What, what does he mean by that? Lacking in the sufferings of Christ. In what way does Christ's sufferings lack that they needed to be filled up? Only in this sense that now the Apostle Paul and all of us, we are the objects of the world's hatred. When he was here, he was the singular object of the world's hatred. And the world heaped its hatred on him. But they killed him and he went away, but their hatred for him has not subsided. And so now, since he could not suffer anymore at the hands of the world, now we get to do that. We get it. And so we are continuing in his sufferings. So his sufferings, or our sufferings are his sufferings, because we bear his name and the world hates us. This is the reproach that we are called to bear. The reproach. Are you willing and are you able to gladly bear the reproach of the name of Christ? Because in the eyes of the world, the name of Christ is a reproach. I dare you, college student, to stand up in your class and speak the name of Christ in a positive way. I dare you to do that in your public school system. You will bear reproach your entire life for doing that. The, the world looks at the name of Christ and they see it as a reproach. We don't. We see it as something different. We see it as a badge of honor, a pearl, a jewel, a precious gem to bear that name, to bear that reproach. Psalm 69, verse 6, David writes this, May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now ultimately, because that psalm is quoted of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who ultimately fulfills that in Psalm 69. But David was an Old Testament saint who who knew what it meant to bear the reproaches of his God. And because he was a saint, those who were in the world, as they always have, hated the saints of God. And so now the question to you is, will you bear the reproach of the name of Christ? The the world views the name of Christ and our identification with Him as something worthy of reproach, worthy of disdain, worthy of hatred and dishonor. But we view it as a precious badge, a badge of honor and a jewel. And so we can say with the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, verse 13, So let us go with Him, that is, with Christ, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here, that is, in this world, we do not have a lasting city. But we wait for an everlasting city which is to come. And so we go outside the world and we gladly bear the reproach of the name of Christ. That's your calling, Christian. Rejoice in it. Enjoy it. Delight in it. Where it is a badge of honor. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you for the warnings that you have given us in Scripture of what we ought to expect in this world. And if at any moment or any day we think that we deserve better than the Master, then we certainly are in, in that admitting our tacit 
um, view that we we are better than the Master since we think we deserve better than, than He deserved. We thank You that He has been an example to us of unjust suffering, suffering at the hands of men. And we would gladly bear the reproach of the name of Christ for to trade the reproach for Christ's name, to trade that for the respect of the world, is to trade all the precious gold of heaven for feathers and dust and flax and stuff that will perish and waste away. This world is passing away in all of its lusts. And so may we as your people gladly take joy in the fact that we do not belong to this world, but we have been chosen out of it. May we delight in that, Father. Work in our hearts a work that would cause us to delight in that and to gladly bear the reproach of the name of Christ and never be ashamed of you or of his gospel, that you might be glorified through us as we seek to proclaim the truth, stand outside the world, and call people out of darkness into light. May you do that work through us, and may you be, may you be pleased to use your people to that end, that Christ may receive the full reward for his suffering, and that all those whom you have chosen and loved for yourself may be called out of the world to repentance and faith, placing their faith in, in Christ and receiving the joy of salvation. Thank you for doing that in our hearts, and we delight in you, and we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.